Hey, it's Tom. Welcome back to the Cannaboomers podcast. We're focused on cannabis and wellness. And if you've been paying attention to that, you've probably noticed that people are talking about psilocybin, also known as magical mushrooms. It's an interesting story. How did the party drug of the 1980s become the new wellness darling being used for PTSD, for smoking cessation in microdoses as a performance enhancement? It's a good story. So we pulled in Pat Smith, a London-based neuroscientist who has a lot of expertise and has been writing about this for a long time. It's a good interview. We cover a lot of ground. I am curious about some of your perspective on this. So if you do have questions or concerns or, or you'd like to just chat, drop me a line, tom at cannaboomerswithak.com and or sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Five Boom Friday. You can sign up for that at cannaboomers.com as well. I think you'll enjoy this episode. We went all over the place and Pat really knows his stuff. So listen in and learn and let others know. Thanks for listening. This is Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast, CBD, microdosing, and all things related to medical cannabis for baby boomers. From San Diego, here's your host, Thomas J. We're here with Pat Smith. Hi, Pat. How are you today? Hey, I'm all right. Uh, great to be here. You're in London, right? Yeah, I live in London, UK. Uh, one of the hubs of uh, psychedelic activity in the world at the moment. Wow, I didn't know that. What is it about London that makes it a, a hub? I mean, partially it's that you've got two large research centers here uh, at Imperial College and UCL uh, in London that do quite a bit of the psychedelic research, that's especially into psilocybin that's been coming out recently. And then also here's the home of the Psychedelic Society, the London Psychedelic Society, which is probably one of the largest in the world and holds events across the country. And they also hold psychedelic retreats, uh, magic mushroom retreats in Amsterdam. So there's a lot going on in London. If you're interested in psychedelics, there's a big underground scene as well as the above board stuff. Uh, so there's a lot happening here. So in terms of acceptance, do you see it as being greater in the UK or greater in the US? That's an interesting question. And since I, since I haven't lived in the US, I'm not sure I could answer that, you know, fully, but I, there are very different views on drugs. And I think in the UK, there's a big stigma still against cannabis, uh, a much more of a stigma than there is in the US, obviously, because you've had that such a big wave of legalization. Uh, And here, that's, I think, psychedelic decriminalization is more likely to happen here before cannabis. Uh, which is quite an interesting difference. And uh, people here seem to be a little bit more pragmatic and a little bit more accepting of the potential of psychedelics, especially in treating mental health conditions compared to cannabis, which is just here has still such a stigma attached and people just see it as a as a, a drug of abuse rather than a drug that can be used for healing or, or a plant that can be used for healing. We'll dive into the stigma in a little bit, but that is our focus at Cannaboomers is primarily on wellness. And we do talk about cannabis most of the time, but we're interested in other aspects of it too. So let me ask you, how can psilocybin and other psychedelics uh, help promote personal wellness? Well, there are two sort of main areas where psychedelics can help with wellness. The the first is with specific conditions. So uh, mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, OCD, Uh, And then you have physical conditions like cluster headaches. Um, And then the second area is in uh, more sort of general uh, psychological wellness, uh, the connection to self, connection to other people, so it can improve relationships, connection to nature, and also a connection to a mystical experience, which a lot of people are lacking in their everyday lives. So a connection to some kind of spiritual uh, experience, to, to some kind of sense of, of uh, divine power, purpose or, or something beyond the self. Uh, so in those two areas, psychedelics hold a lot of potential. It kind of gets into, I don't know, I'll call it hippy dippy or, or <laughs> you know, some of the stuff that is seen as way out there. But it's a way to begin to integrate, I guess, a spiritual side into your life. Absolutely, especially for people who haven't really encountered um, spiritual or haven't got much spirituality in their life and sort of rightfully are afraid of or shy away from organized religion and see the damage that organized religion can do. I think psychedelics offer a way to introduce people to spirituality in a more secular way. They don't have to be in a church. They don't have to be, you know, singing hymns. 
uh, it's a very personal encounter with, uh, or it can be a very personal encounter with the sort of whatever mystical aspects of reality that feel important to you or encounters with personal meaning on a really deep level that you may not have encountered before. Do you see pushback from organized religion when you when we talk about that aspect? That's an interesting question. I I I would say there's there are always going to be religious people who who disagree with psychedelics. I think one area I know a little bit about is is Buddhism that um some people interpret uh, one of the rules of Buddhism which is basically sobriety to mean that you can't take any substances, even if they, they are substances that might assist in a meditative uh, uh, journey or assist in, assist in the practicing of Buddhism. So some Buddhists disagree with psychedelics and others, others maybe think that it could be incorporated into religious practice. And I, I see, personally, I see more that religious practitioners are quite open to the idea of psychedelics being being part of of organized religion and certainly that's the way it's been in humanity's past there have been a number of indigenous societies where psychedelics have been very much fundamental to the practicing of of religions and uh one other thing to point out is that the uh there's a study ongoing i think organized by maps which is the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies Uh, where they are giving psychedelics to religious leaders, various religious leaders, to to see kind of if the the psychedelic trips that they end up having are significantly different from those of non-religious people. So you know, from my, from where I'm sitting, there's much more acceptance and curiosity among religious people and from religious organizations than there is fear. That's interesting. I mean, it may help you connect with your God, whichever God you're hoping to connect with. Yeah, absolutely. I think it has, uh, yeah, enormous potential to just uh, introduce spirituality uh, in a way that's meaningful for the individual, which which is certainly lacking in Western culture at the moment, I think. One thing we didn't touch on at the top, you're a neuroscientist, so you do have an understanding of the brain and, and chemicals in the brain and so on. Yeah, that's right. I, I started my career as a neuroscientist and uh, spent several years studying uh, as a researcher. And I have a, a PhD in cell biology, in stem cell biology, which is a little different from neuroscience, but I'm still primarily a neuroscientist. And that's the reason I became interested in psychedelics was because I felt I was studying consciousness from the ground up and it felt like psychedelics might offer me an opportunity to examine consciousness from the other direction. And after having explored psychedelics a little bit personally, uh, it then pushed me to want to get more involved in the psychedelic movement rather than neuroscience, which I felt was kind of hitting a bit of a brick wall in terms of how much it, how much power it had to actually explain consciousness. And I know over in the United States, the, for instance, cannabis is really not taught very much in medical schools. And I'm wondering, in your experience, in, in academia and possibly into medical school, is there still a stigma around psychedelics or is there greater acceptance? Certainly greater acceptance. Um, I think because also there's, like I mentioned, there's quite a strong research base here. And neuroscience has always been popular, a popular part of the life sciences. And the fact that so many of the big name psychedelic studies have been neuroimaging, uh, I think psychedelics are very much accepted by mainstream science. And uh, it's a topic that garners lots of interest, lots of following, and is considered very legitimate. Um, at, at Imperial College, the psychedelic research group has, has been set up, I think, uh, sometime around the middle of last year. And uh, they have, you know, they have their own institute now. It's uh, It's a fully-fledged field of, of neuroscience now. Well, I guess I'm interested in your th perspective around, has is the culture catching up to the science? Again, there, there's stigma. In the 70s and 80s, we were told we were risking chromosomal damage if we took psychedelics, that it could permanently brain damage you. That story had an effect over time, just like the, the anti-cannabis propaganda. But science uncovers reality. Is, is the culture catching up to the scientific knowledge on this? Yeah, I would say the science is absolutely helping lead the way. And 
change change a lot of these stigmas like you say i mean those those old uh, uh stories about lsd you know giving you birth defects chromosomal damage you know staring into the sun until you were blind all that all that kind of stuff all completely fabricated all completely non-scientific and now yes people are believing this science that's saying these substances are relatively harmless uh, physiologically, there's no toxicity. And yeah, we're also seeing that they can help people therapeutically. So I think it's it's a case of the culture very much now being completely won over by the science, if anything. And, and the current wave of psychedelic acceptance is very much being science-driven. And the people who are leading the scientific community are very often clinicians and scientists. They're the people who are listened to. They're the people who are interviewed in the news, in the mainstream coverage of, of psychedelics. So it's a, yeah, it's a different story to, to the sort of counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s. Right. I mean, as we edge into the mainstream, what do you think that looks like down the road? Can you walk into a drugstore and buy a psychedelic dose? Are there centers where you go on a retreat? What would it look like when we really accept this as positive medicine? Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of different ways it could look. Um, that's for sure. The way I'd like the future of, of psychedelics to look is that uh, it's very much community centric. Uh, so instead of, you know, being able to walk into a pharmacy and get a prescription, instead you're going to a community center, which is run by experts with locally grown psychedelic products. And you're guided through a carefully curated ceremony by people who know what they're doing and are, are dedicated to your benefit. Um, I think there's certainly a, a more likely reality is uh, regulation, uh, particularly medical regulation. So you might see that the only places you could get psychedelics are through licensed medical centers with licensed therapists. Uh, you could, you may have to be of a particular uh, level of suffering, uh, you know, at a particular, uh, you, you may have to, adhere to particular uh, medical screening requirements and there may be a lot of control over who can be a psychedelic therapist so basically i think there's it's going to be a mix of seeing yeah the kind of over-the-counter stuff the kind of something that looks a bit more like legalization and then something that's a bit more like medicalization where you have therapy centers, but it's all very licensed and very regulated. And then maybe you'll have pockets of decriminalization where it's very much community driven and there's not so much profit and corporate interest. Um, and you're seeing decriminalization efforts working quite successfully in the, in the US at the moment, led by decriminalized nature in Oakland and Denver and Santa Cruz at the moment. Well, you did mention a couple things in there that are interesting, the the aspect of corporate and the profitability of it. I mean, that's what drives the development of, of any consumer product in, in most of the world. And I think you also mentioned like locally grown. So that's the distinction for psilocybin. There's also, as you mentioned earlier, LSD and other, I guess, lab developed possibilities as well, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The uh psychedelic world is not limited to natural materials, although they're very different. So ketamine, for example, has reached uh, patients in the US, I believe it's already been given off-label to people for the treatment of depression. Uh, yeah, you have LSD, which has been shown to be also effective in treating depression. And you have MDMA, which has reached phase three clinical trials in the US and has been given a breakthrough therapy status by the FDA. Um, so yeah, in many ways, the synthetic substances are um, a little ahead of, of the natural ones in terms of the medicalization and the possible corporatization. Um, but you, you're also seeing that with some of the natural psychedelics. So Compass Pathways is a company that has um, taken, over psych uh, research, taken over research into psilocybin quite heavily, they've invested heavily into the manufacture of psilocybin, and they may be a big player in the 
potential medical model of magic mushrooms. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for psychedelic healing, you have a huge variety of options from the synthetic to the natural. Obviously, in the situation I painted where, you know, communities would ideally be growing magic mushrooms or other psychedelic plants and fungi in, in the you know, to, within their own control, uh, they can't really, to the same extent, set up an LSD lab. Uh, so it looks like... Mm, the it looks like medicalization will will be more heavily synthetic and the natural side of things may end up being more about decriminalization and and allowing both religious freedoms and individual cognitive freedoms and personal liberties we've talked about the medicalization and also using this as a more organic a substance. But I'm wondering if there's a distinction to be made when we're talking about the profitability. I mean, it's not like mm -hmm. um, toothpaste where you use it every single day. So for companies, you mentioned Compass Pathways. Mm -hmm. Is is there a, you know, a clear path to this being profitable? Yeah, that's a great question. I, as Most of the clinical studies into magic mushrooms have, have, have shown that a single moderate dose or a couple of moderate doses are enough to significantly reduce symptoms or have positive benefits um, for you know six months or longer. Uh, so that you're right in that pharmaceutical companies don't really have that much to gain uh, in terms of the money. The where the where the industry comes in is that. Also, in a lot of these studies, people were given psilocybin as part of a larger kind of therapy session. So they'd they'd go through several courses of several sessions of therapy over the course of the study, and this would require a therapy dyad of two highly trained therapists, and takes lots of time and money. Um, in the MDMA trials, for example, which is also something that only needs a couple of moderate doses to have a significant and lasting effect. A, you know, one of these courses of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy currently costs about $15,000 before insurance has covered it. So there's a lot of scope for this being adopted by companies, and it's very much within the psychedelic-assisted therapy model where the psychedelic is not the thing that's earning the money. It's the psychedelic being part of a larger therapy session where the psychedelic has been used to boost the effectiveness of a typical, typical therapy course. You also have, uh, the, the, ben the, uh, you also have the profitability of psychedelic retreats and ceremonies. So you have many of these operating that charge can charge a lot of money to give you a sort of luxurious, all-inclusive package of traveling to another country, having your plant medicine ceremony with expert guidance, alongside maybe also workshops, massage, yoga, all sorts of other things that can bump up the price. So there's although although psilocybin is certainly something that does not follow the usual pharmaceutical model of something that needs to be given out again and again and again, there's still a lot of potential for corporatization, a lot of potential for businesses to want to invest and to want to get their hands on on different models of, of providing psilocybin. So Compass Pathways, for example, they are hoping to make money partially through patenting one way of making psilocybin, as well as hoping to make money through the uh, researching the best ways to provide the therapy courses that accompany it. Sure. There's always a market for self-realization, right? Mm, absolutely. The broader question, I guess, is how people use this and how does the world change when people do have a connection to God or they have greater self-awareness? What, what does the world really look like when people can use this tool to really develop themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question, and it's a very deep one. Uh, we've, we've grown up a little bit from the times when many of the counterculture movement thought that a dose of LSD in the water supply would be enough to change the world. You know, do, do many people these days still believe that if you gave Donald Trump a bit of LSD, he would completely change his policies? You know, I think we've, we've got to the point where we realize that psychedelics by themselves are not enough to 
change the world and make a positive difference. We have to be really conscious about the way we're using them and for what purposes. So a lot of the self-development kind of retreats or, or businesses that use psychedelics have been marketing them as a way to boost your productivity at work or to, you know, boost your performance as a capitalist, you know, and not so much been focused on personal well-being, sort of improving your relationships to each other, to yourself, improve, sort of in, uh, exploring your spirituality, improving your connection to nature. I think we need to take psychedelics with those intentions for them to really have a positive impact in the world and to understand that it's not sort of like a, a, a one pill and everything's okay kind of thing. Psychedelics introduce you to a lot of potential to change yourselves, but to change yourself, but you still have to do the work yourself, which is why a lot of the amazing results we've seen from the clinical research happen when the people taking psychedelics are doing so within a context of therapy. They have therapists guiding them and making them feel safe and allowing them to explore the deeper aspects of themselves in, a, in, a, in an ideal setting. So psychedelics certainly have the potential to make the world a better place, but we need to be doing them in a way that is intentional and very carefully guided. And we need to be very aware that they can do damage. They can brainwash people. They can give people traumatic experiences. Uh, they're potentially dangerous as well as being having the potential to absolutely change the world. One thing I could go into a bit more depth about is, is the connection to nature um, as we're sort of, as the world is becoming more aware of how dire the climate crisis is. Uh, a lot of research is coming out showing that psychedelics can boost our connection to nature and our, our realization that, that we have a part in nature, that we're not just a separate entity that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, our actions don't have consequences. Um, but again, that's something that requires intention. If, if someone has no connection to nature at all as a baseline and then takes magic mushrooms in a dark room with no one around, it's very unlikely that that experience in itself is going to make them feel more connected to nature. It's much more likely that if you have someone who's already curious about exploring a connection to nature and then trips outside in a beautiful setting with the guidance of people who know what they're doing and, you know, with a clear intention to explore that, then there's a great, there's a great potential to boost that person's appreciation of nature and to understand their place in it and to then maybe treat the world a little better. So, you know, with, that's a nice little example of how important it is to take psychedelics with intention and understanding that it's not just like flipping a switch. It's something that requires you to do a lot of work, both in terms of preparation and making sure you set it up with the right intention. And then also making sure you integrate this experience in a way that actually makes sense and that you make sh that shows you're aware that you have to do a lot of work afterwards right maybe in the past some of these things were seen as party drugs where you had this mind-blowing experience and it didn't really matter what your mindset was but if you think about it before during and after and try to integrate it into whatever vision you may have then that's a way where it is going to really make a difference it's not going to be a one-off trip yeah, absolutely. And and like you say, it's not to say that magic mushrooms can't be, t and other psychedelics can't be taken with no intention and they can be fun and they can be recreational. Um, but yeah, taking them with the intention and with, with careful consideration and with the acknowledgement that this is about working on yourself is uh, much more powerful. And all of this is sort of on the spiritual and emotional side, but you're a neuroscientist. Can you tell us what we know about the mechanism that it's that's at work? How do psychedelics work in your brain to have this result? Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to go a little bit into the neuroscience and then also talk about how psychedelics actually work when we look at them and and the experiences they evoke in people. So the neuroscience we're we're, we're understanding quite a bit more now about how psychedelics work in the brain. Uh, Matt, I'll stick to magic mushrooms because you know that's we actually have got quite a bit of information about these magic mushrooms work uh, through this molecule called psilocybin as soon as that's ingested into the body it's broken down into a slightly different molecule called psilocin 
which then goes to activate a specific, mainly a specific type of serotonin receptor called 5-HT2A, although it does activate uh, a whole host of other receptors. The activation of this receptor has a, a bunch of sort of knock-on effects in the brain, but one way of summarizing what it does, and this has been backed up by some recent neuroimaging studies, is that it allows the brain to become a bit more disorganized and then a bit more organized again after the after the trip, which is why some uh, leading researchers have described it as having a kind of reset effect in that it can break your brain out of uh, sort of whatever set patterns it's got itself stuck into, into a very sort of high entropy state where everything is connecting in unusual ways. Um, and then back down to being in a more ordered, uh, a bit more solid and organized state than before. Uh, so this is the sort of leading theory of how psychedelics are working in the brain and, and especially magic mushrooms. Um, one of the interesting things about this, though, is that we still can't really explain how that is connected to the mystical experience. And you in 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 one of the big studies on psilocybin the smoking cessation study where psilocybin has been shown to help people quit smoking at much better levels than most of the usual treatments uh, it seemed that people in that study who had the most mystical experiences also had the most uh the, the greatest clinical benefits and we're seeing this in other studies as well that Basically, across the board with psychedelics, the more mystical experience you have, the greater the healing benefits. And this points to the importance of, of realizing that the neuroscience is very interesting and definitely helps us understand how to treat disease and, and some mental health conditions. But it's also really important to understand the limitations of that and really focus on the experience that people are having. When you look at people who are having the most healing experiences with, with psychedelics, they're quite often talking about the power that psychedelics had to bring them deep within themselves, to help them see maybe the root of their trauma or to help them revisit past memories or to come upon a sense of purpose that they feel like they'd lost or maybe never had. You know, these things are very hard to quantify in terms of neuroscience. And we might never be able to, and we also might not even need to. I think it's important to remember when we're talking about how psychedelics work, these are primarily substances that affect the way we see the world. So the first thing we should be asking, or the first thing we should be investigating when we look into how psychedelics work is, how do they make people feel? Where are people going when they take psychedelics? Without this understanding, psych, for example, psychedelic-assisted therapy wouldn't work at all because therapists need to understand where the psychedelics are taking people, you know? So understand that psychedelics quite often help people revisit past traumas within a new context. And the therapist can then guide the participant through this experience in a really helpful way because they understand what's going on. You can't get this level of insight just from looking at the neuroscience. So the neuroscience can help us understand maybe the pharmacology of how we can develop drugs that um, are in some ways more effective or have fewer side effects, that kind of thing. But that also has to be paired with an understanding of the subjective experience of psychedelics. You said a couple things there, sort of the disorganization, reorganization, reset aspect, which most of us can understand, you know, when our computer crashes or there's so many of our devices where, you know, you turn it off and reboot it and it comes back online. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty mechanistic view. Then there's the sort of call it ego death, I guess, where you step outside yourself and have a different lens. I mean, Aldous Huxley wrote Doors of Perception in the 1950s where he talked about just having a different perspective, right? Yeah. And some neuroscientists will start to say that the kind of reorganization you're seeing in the brain is an explanation for the ego death and is, is sort of, you know, the cause of being able to explore things beyond normal reality. But um, I think that's, I could go into a lot more depth into this, but 
when that happens, it's scientists becoming philosophers, which is not always the best idea. I know from experience. Um, so basically, yeah, you you have that sort of very mechanistic view of what's happening, where you're looking at the brain from the outside in and seeing it, it sort of reset, I guess, in some ways. But then you have the the much more, I think, rich side of things where like Aldous Huxley experienced and so many other psychonauts before and since him, uh, psychedelics take you to a completely new way of experiencing the universe. You, your typical ego, your typical way of thinking about yourself and the world is often completely dissolved. You're left somewhere completely alien, completely new, and you sort of have to piece yourself back together in a way. And what the uh, me mechanistic neuroscience explanation leaves out is that it really, from a personal level, is not very much like flicking a switch off and on again. It's very much about going on a journey and having to work your way back and having to encounter things. And it's a very active process. You know, it's not like a switch turning on and off. It's not like rebooting a computer. It can give you the opportunity to look at yourself in a lot more depth and reorganize your own perception of self and the world. But it's your, your, your consciousness is not your brain. That's absolutely something that is up to the philosophers to talk about, not the scientists. Right. And the artists, Alice in Wonderland. I mean, there's a reason why it's called the trip. As you say, it's it's not a binary on-off thing. And for a lot of people, that's a scary proposition. Piecing yourself back together, it could be fun or it could be a horrible ride. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is why the most positive benefits we're seeing with psychedelics are with people who are guided by therapists or by people who are very experienced. You know, it's true that piecing yourself back together can be terrifying, uh, especially for people who've had no experience with these kind of states or who have a lot of trauma in their past. If you're going through a psychedelic experience without someone there to guide you or look after you, it can be truly awful and it can be, it can have lasting traumatic effects. Um, so in one study, surveyed around 2000 people who'd used psilocybin at home and had a challenging experience as the result of it around 150 of them said that the experience was so severely traumatizing that they had to seek long-term psychological help afterwards so i think this certainly this ego dissolution and then piecing yourself back together the the entire psychedelic experience can be very very difficult it can be very challenging it can be traumatic the most potential for having a good trip and having and encountering the healing benefits is having a guide or having at least someone there who is sober who has experience with the with the psychedelic and who can look after you this is sort of a reoccurring theme in this conversation is, you know, the before, during and after and the follow through in a therapeutic way. So I think maybe, I don't know if you're saying, you know, kids don't try this at home. If you are interested in this in the UK, you would connect with Imperial College. In the United States, maybe you go to Oakland and Denver and, and look for someone who's a guide, but it might not be wise to just go willy nilly and, and trying this on your own. Yeah, I guess so. And it's, it's, it's not quite as harsh as saying don't, don't do this, you know, because because people have been taking psychedelics recreationally for decades in the West, and for uh, a very long time in the rest of the world. And, you know, they're overall not hugely harmful, and people have great times on them. People, uh, you know, believe me, I have heard horrendous stories of people mixing all sorts of psychedelics and having a great time at raves and coming home being absolutely fine. It's, it's just, so it's not so much a case of, you know, don't do this at home, more if you are really interested in exploring psychedelics for a particular reason, and, and especially if it's to explore a mental health issue you have, you will benefit the most from seeking out 
someone who can help you, uh, ideally a therapist or a guide who's very experienced with psychedelics. Maybe enroll in a study if you have what, yeah, as you say, maybe enroll in a study if you have one going near you. Consider flying to a country where there are psychedelic retreats that are held responsibly with medical professionals and therapists on hand. Go to, yeah, maybe go to Oakland, Denver, or Santa Cruz, or maybe one of the other cities that are lined up to, to decriminalize psychedelics next and find your local psychedelic guide who can, who can help you through an experience so you don't have to go it alone. Yeah. The, the warning is not so stern, but it is to stay away from it necessarily, but to, for a better result, talk with someone who's experienced at this and, and you'll probably have a better outcome. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, with that in mind, how about sourcing it? I mean, I know with CBD in this country, uh, you know, we ran into this vape crisis last fall that I tell people, mm. you know, don't buy your CBD at a gas station and, and make sure it's mm. organic and it's from a, cer- a source that's certified. How do you know where to look if you wanted to get some psilocybin and how would you know if it is quality? Yeah, so you have a number of options with magic mushrooms. Uh, the the best one I think is that they grow they grow everywhere they grow in America they grow anywhere that it's damp and moist and sheltered um, there are many guides out there to identifying wild growing magic mushrooms you can go out to your local woodland try and see if you can identify some and uh, make sure you get it right obviously because there are some poisonous mushroom species out there but I think that's the best way to encounter magic mushrooms. In most places, it's not illegal to go out and pick them as long as it's for personal consumption. Um, So, you know, that's, I think, should be everyone's first port of call. Other than that, you can uh, obviously go uh, somewhere it's been decriminalized. Um, It's hard to, if if you're eating kind of dried mushrooms, it's hard for it to be adulterated you know like like synthetic psychedelics often are mixed with other things it looks like a mushroom it's probably a psychedelic mushroom unless someone's trying to kill you with a poisonous one and why would anyone do that um the the only sort of common misconception is that the uh red and i don't know if this is even worth including the common misconception is that the red and white spotted Amanita muscaria mushroom is a magic mushroom. That is actually not a magic mushroom. That contains a substance called muscamol, which is very unpleasant and uh, is quite different from psilocybin mushroom experience. So your your ports of call are, are sort of, sorry to just recap for myself, <laughs> growing them, uh, going somewhere where it's sort of decriminalized. You can also order psilocybin truffles online from the Netherlands. Uh, psilocybin truffles are just an earlier stage of development of the magic mushroom and they are legal in the netherlands so depending on where you are in the world you can order them Uh, you also um, have the option in some states of growing your own magic mushrooms i know new mexico it's legal to grow your own magic mushrooms in many states it's legal to buy magic mushroom spores online Um, so you can grow your magic mushrooms from spores in many states. So I would say, look up the laws of your own state, see if you can purchase some spores online, make, grow your own magic mushrooms, because, uh, that's a fun process. It's kind of difficult to grow, grow mushrooms, especially if you've never done anything like it before, but it can be quite a satisfying experience to have grown your own magic mushrooms from nothing and for it to be, be done legally as well. Those are kind of your only options until uh, decriminalization sweeps across the country and and you'll have a number of different options of where to go and buy magic mushrooms. The finding them in the wild, I think that would be fun to do, but I I would be very careful knowing that yeah, there are some that are poisonous. I mean, you would mm. uh, you would have to have a someone very confident or, or the confidence yourself that this is, what I'm looking for. And then would you eat them fresh or would you dry them out or how would you process that? Yeah. So you can, you can eat the magic mushrooms fresh. They don't taste very nice. So most people tend to try and brew them into a tea or drink them with ginger and lemon. Most people dry them just because then that's easier to store them. So you can dry them with a dehydrator and uh, then just keep them in a Tupperware. And uh, is Tupperware a word in America? 
Oh, it sure is. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> and uh, save them for later and just chew on them. Um, you need to make sure you're aware of what species the, the mushroom is and uh, ideally, and so that you're aware of the dose uh, and make sure you're taking a responsible dose for, for first timers, take a, take a relatively low dose. That can be anything. Uh, let me, let me just check up my chart here. So I'm definitely giving correct information because this is really important. Uh, so a, a sort of low dose of fresh mushrooms may be around the sort of 10 gram range, but again, this will depend on the species and, um, if the mushrooms are dried, this will be around around one gram would be a low dose. So for for anyone new to magic mushrooms, take a take a very low dose, and uh, you know all the usual uh, disclaimers and and uh, notes about preparation apply, such as making sure you're in a comfortable and safe environment with a sober sitter and with no distractions and a sort of a plan for what you're going to do and make sure you have some nice food and, and water and comfortable things around to occupy you. When we talk about dosing, there's the trip dose. And then I know some people are microdosing. I mean, I know up in Silicon Valley, as you said, some people are taking psychedelics as, as a performance enhancer, right? Yeah. And that's sort of uh, what I was alluding to earlier when I mentioned the people suggesting that psychedelics can help make you a better capitalist worker. Um, so yeah, many people are interested in microdosing. And I think that's actually a good way to get introduced to psychedelics if you've never taken any before. And if you're a bit afraid of taking a full dose that will make you trip. Microdosing involves just taking um, around a tenth to a hundredth of a, of a normal dose. And basically the idea is that if you're doing it in a sort of the way, in a puritanical kind of way, it's supposed to not have any noticeable effects on your perception. So you can go about your day and have your normal, do your normal activities. And ideally at the end of the day, feel sort of look back on the day and recognize that maybe there was a bit of a glow or things got done faster or you felt a bit more connected to people. So microdosing is an interesting route to introduce yourself to psychedelics. If you're you know, a little bit apprehensive about taking a full dose. You don't necessarily need a sitter. You, you know, don't necessarily need to clear out any time in your day or travel to another country. Uh, just take a tiny dose and see how it makes you feel and take notes, take a few days break in between each microdose and, uh, you know, see if it's something you might be interested in, in experiencing a full guided dose with it at some point. Something I should also mention about microdosing, though, is that uh, currently there's a little bit of evidence that suggests that if you take magic mushrooms very frequently, at low, even at low doses, there might be a slight risk of uh, develop of increasing your chance of developing valvular heart disease. This is still a completely speculative thing, uh, and it may very well be that they're very safe to take frequently. Uh, but just to be safe people are advised to microdose for periods of three months or less and then take a break. And that's an interesting way to put it, taking them in a puritanical way. But hmm. there's a spectrum There's a spectrum of people who are maybe trying to improve their work performance and are interested in a very small dose. And then at the other end, someone who's looking for sort of a transformational experience to really change their life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, microdosing is a difficult thing because, yeah, there is no sort of one microdosing Bible and there's no one right way to do it. You know, you have everything from a, a microdose, which is, you know, barely perceptible at all. And some people would call a placebo up to something people would call a museum dose where you take maybe half or a third of a normal dose. So you can wander around a museum or go see a film or something in a, with a pleasant buzz all the way up to the moderate doses you'd see in, in the sort of clinical studies and then to the heroic doses where people take uh, very unreasonable quantities of psychedelics in the hope of uh, complete ego destruction or, or who knows, going somewhere completely alien. When you say unreasonable dose, you talked about 
a one gram dose as a microdose when it's dried, what would that look like in heroic terms? Well, the one gram dose was was a light a light to moderate dose. A microdose would be a, a tenth of a gram, uh, but the heroic dose might be five grams or upwards, um, depending again on the species and the and the person and their tolerance. Um, and when I say unreasonable dose, it's more, it's not that it has any physiological toxicity. You know, people can take huge quantities of psychedelics and not have any physical risk. It's more that if you take such a large dose, you you really want to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into, that you have a good support network around you, that you ideally have a good sitter or guide. Um, you know, there there are people who have taken very large doses of psychedelics and ended up reasonably traumatized. Uh, but yeah, the the quantity can be huge. For example, in the in the seventies, a group of people snorted lines of crystal LSD by accident, thinking it was cocaine, and they all survived, even though they take they were taking thousands of times a typical dose. Um, they did have some internal bleeding and very unpleasant symptoms, but none of them none of them died so when i say unreasonable i am just talking about uh the fact that if you're going that high you need to really make sure you're supported safely right you're gonna bend reality so you better batten down the hatches basically <laughs> yeah that's a good way of putting it what i hear you saying is this is all kind of a test and learn scenario if you are sourcing it freshly or growing your own, you do need a scale to measure it. Otherwise, if you're buying it from a source, this is somebody you, you need to trust and hopefully they can give you some advice as to the potency and mm. what your dosage might be. But it's a lot like cannabis. I mean, for every individual, I might have a different experience than you mm. with a different cultivar and so on. Oh, absolutely, and there are, the the world of psychedelics is so magical for this way, for this reason, and especially natural psychedelics because different mushrooms have different effects, have different characteristics, different species, uh, different growers will grow their mushrooms in different ways. Uh, it's it can be yeah really quite fascinating. This is why I would recommend getting involved with your local psychedelic community. Many cities in the U.S. will have psychedelic groups and communities, and getting involved with them is a good way of finding people who are growing uh, plant medicines and a good way of getting in touch with magic mushrooms that you know are going to be good and you know are going to be are going to be okay. Uh, so that's a if you're interested in in getting your hands on some magic mushrooms, make friends with the local psychedelic people, and you know maybe you'll get lucky enough to come across some and. Yeah, much like in the in the the world of cannabis, find all sorts of fascinating differences between different strains and and how they'll have different effects on different people. And I guess you know the caveat we have to mention is it is still illegal, but like cannabis, where prohibition is sort of on the roll. I mean, state by state in the U.S. and I, you know, the U.K. has its own uh, environment there. But we are sort of rolling towards legalization, I think, or, or decriminalization. Oh, psychedelics. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that last year we saw decriminalization in three U.S. cities uh, was really very encouraging. And I think people were surprised at how quick it happened. And uh, I think it shows the power of local going through local government. Local governments are a lot more interested in the idea of reducing policing costs than uh, than federal government. And I think we might be seeing the way, the beginning of a wave of psychedelic decriminalization, which will be really interesting and will will probably open up the availability of magic mushrooms to many more people and. Uh, through through community as well and communities who know what they're doing because these initiatives are being led in cities which already have psychedelic infrastructure so to speak and there will be communities in these cities who know how to grow and use psychedelic plants and i'd love to see this wave spread across the us and with it a wave of education information and people being able to learn very quickly how best to use plant medicines in a safe and effective way. 
that's a really positive scenario to project into the future, and, and I hope we do get there. Um, is there anything, Pat, we haven't discussed that you think is important for our listeners to hear? The one thing I'd like to say particularly is that um, as, as you've seen with the cannabis, with cannabis legalization, uh, there have been some downsides to legal regulation in terms of, in some cases, unfair taxing, in some cases, unfair monopolization of the market, and in some cases, the fact that uh, prior convicts have not been able to get jobs in the industry. Uh, I think if psych- as psychedelics get more popular and start to go more mainstream, we have to be really aware of the risks of regulation and make sure that in my mind, I think the important thing is to make sure that decriminalization is the first step. And then we maybe start thinking about how best to introduce models of regulated therapy and regulated markets, because I think there are a lot of risks that, have, that, that come with, with regulation and legalization. And psychedelics could absolutely end up being co-opted by big businesses that are just interested in profit and just interested in uh, restricting access to certain people rather than allowing the freedom of communities to develop their own ways of using psychedelics to boost personal well-being and community well-being in the, in the best ways possible. Well, I think I hear you saying, uh, you know, similar to cannabis, you mentioned that local governments are doing this much faster than than federal governments. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a good benefit to actually engaging with your local community and getting involved in this. If you are at all interested in promoting this, don't leave it to the politicians who don't always as we know, get things right. Mm-hmm. It, it might be uh, advantageous for all of us to look around locally and see who's involved in this. Yeah, and uh, for anyone who's interested in America and getting involved, it's very easy. Send an email uh, or go to the Decriminalized Nature website, which is decriminalizednature.org, and you can contact them through the website and get an information pack. It's very easy to start organizing on a grassroots level and there may well be organization efforts underway in your city already. And if you want to get involved, it'll be easy to be a part of the the coming wave of decriminalization. Thanks, Pat. This has been really interesting. I mean, I I feel like we scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about. So uh, maybe we can have you back. But I also want to ask where you are online, if people want to connect, if you're blogging anywhere or where people can find you. Sure. I write at thepsychedelicscientist.com. That's where I write all my personal material, although I do a bunch of other writing for different publications. And you can find me on Twitter at RJ Patrick Smith, which is where I mostly tweet angry things about UK politics and social justice, if that's your kind of thing. But that's the best place to get in touch with me. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I know our listeners are going to love this information, and I look forward to looking around locally myself and uh, experimenting in a a test-and-learn fashion. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Great. Thanks very much. It's been fun. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast with Thomas J. For more on medicinal cannabis for baby boomers, visit us at cannaboomers.com.